Hello and welcome to the 1 Peter 5 podcast, episode 13. On today's episode, we revisit the March for Life, where I went and talked to marchers on the street about why they're still coming after 42 years of being ignored. Their courage and insight is inspiring. They always talk about your choice and your choice and all about choice and all that stuff. I've talked to girls at abortion clinics and they are going there because they don't have a choice and they're telling me, oh, I can't, I don't have any other choice. And it's So if you want to talk to me about women's rights and having choices, most of those girls are going there because they don't have a choice. Our man on the street interviews straight from the march and more coming up next. The One Peter Five Podcast. It is a real joy for us to welcome you all here. Rebuilding Catholic culture, restoring Catholic tradition. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. My name is Steve Skojek. I am the publisher and executive director of One Peter Five, and I am the host of the One Peter Five Podcast. And it's been a little while. It's been a few months since we did a podcast. And a bunch of you have contacted me and said, what's going on? Where's the podcast? Tell me it's coming back. Well, the reports of the podcast demise have been greatly exaggerated. Podcast is still happening. We're just going to move it to a little bit more of a sane production schedule for 2015. We were going strong. We did 12 one-hour episodes last year in less than six months. And every one-hour episode of podcast probably equates to about eight hours of production time. So um, basically, I I was burning myself out trying to get them done. Uh, A lot of nights spent up until three or four o'clock in the morning working on it and then had to get up because the kids don't really sleep in. (laughs) Got to get up in the morning and be a dad, too. So this year, um, focus is going to be on one a month. That's what we're shooting for. I know we're a little bit late uh, starting in February here, but, you know. We'll do what we can. Um, So that's that. Uh, There is a problem I'm aware of with the podcasting plugin that we've been using. Uh, It's unfortunate because our entire 12-episode podcast library is all plugged into that that plugin um, on our website, and the audio player has been, for some reason, is broken on each of the individual podcast pages. You can see it on on the podcast archive page, which shows the list of all of them. The player's on all the little thumbnails there. But when you go to each individual page, it's gone. Uh, I have been working with the developer to try to figure this out, but he doesn't seem to know what he did because when he updated the plugin, that's when it broke, and now he's not responding to me. So we're going to be moving probably to a new service of some kind. I'm evaluating a couple. Um, And when we get that figured out, we'll get it figured out. I think for now I'm just going to rig it up so that I get a media player on the page um, using something other than the plugin to make it happen so you can download this episode and then uh, we'll just go from there. We'll figure it out. And of course, you can go to iTunes, you can go to Stitcher, you can get the podcast from the syndicated services. We're not going to be continuing to host on SoundCloud because the the cost just isn't worth it to us for the amount of space that we get. Um, if we're going to be paying for a new podcast hosting service, uh, we're not going to pay for another one that doesn't actually sync up with the RSS feed. It's just, it's, yeah, you don't want to get into the technical details. It's too much of a pain. So podcasts will be happening. There will likely be a transition in, in appearance and service at some point this year. Um, but they'll still go on. So that's that. Second thing I wanted to mention before we get into today's content is fundraising. Yes, I am now the proud executive director of a 501c3 tax-exempt organization, charitable organization. So we don't exist without your contributions. Um, And I'm very, very, very pleased that a six-month-old website has managed to raise the amount of money that we have raised in the amount of time that we have. Uh, It's the reason why I'm still here talking to you instead of doing something else. Um, because you've helped me to continue to fund this project and to grow it. So that's fantastic. Uh, I believe, you know, we've raised about $18,000 in our fundraisers over the last six months. So it's a pretty big deal. Um, this year we're shooting higher. 
Uh, we have a goal of $10,000 a month that we're trying to raise, and that's really not even enough to cover all the costs that are related to running the website. Um, there's salary involved, there's freelance uh, payments involved, there's technical costs, there's all kinds of stuff. Um, so, but we're going to shoot for 10 because I think 10 is possible. I know of other Catholic websites that shoot for about $35,000 a month, uh, and they consistently make more than 10 of that goal. So 10 is what we're going for. We're trying to be realistic in our approach. And we're looking at other revenue models and all that. But, I mean, it is a business. We are running a business, and business have costs and have manpower and have all kinds of things that need to get paid. And even if we're tax-exempt, you know, our staff members uh, will not be. So uh, all that has to be baked in. So thank you for those of you who have contributed. Uh, thank you to those of you who will contribute uh, you can hit the donate page on our website on a number of ways. It's at the bottom of every post. You can see our fundraising widget. It's on the right sidebar. There's a donate link at the top of the page. Lots of different ways uh, in order to help us out if you feel that you're getting something of value, and we really appreciate that. Um, so thank you for that. I want to let you know, those of you who have contributed, um, we're going to be doing masses uh, every month on the first of each month for the previous month's benefactors. And for the first Mass, it's going to be offered on March 1st. We're going to include all of the benefactors from last year, as well as our February benefactors. We're doing this on a monthly basis. Masses will be said uh, in the traditional uh, rite. Um, it'll be offered at the Priory of the Annunciation of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which is in Charlestown, West Virginia, 1962 Missal. If you ha have you heard? I don't know if anybody's heard of the Canons Regular of the New Jerusalem. If you haven't, it's a long name, I know, but look it up. Canonsregular.com, I believe, is their website. Um, but take a look. They're a fantastic. They're small, but growing order. Um, you know, they've just been incarnated in the diocese there in West Virginia, and there will be ordinations coming soon of the two seminarians. There's one priest. It's a very small group, but they've built a big and flourishing community around them, and they are just fantastic. I love them to death. So, um, they're going to be working with us for these masses on the first of every month uh, for our benefactors. So thank you so much, and let's get on to today's topic. So we're a few weeks late, but I wanted to talk today about the March for Life. And the reason for that is I started my professional writing career um, with uh, an article about why I no longer attended the March for Life. And that was uh, at InsideCatholic.com, which later rebranded back to its original name of Crisis Magazine. Um, but in 2008, January of 2008, I wrote an article saying, hey, this is why, after all these years of going, I decided that I wasn't going to go anymore. And my reasons were largely pragmatic. Uh, I've lived in the Washington, D.C. area now since um, 2002. So... I mean, I've left a couple times, but I always come back. So it's 2015, so on and off for 13 years I've been here. And something you learn living in the Washington, D.C. area is this. There are a lot of political activities that go on in the city in order to try to gain the attention of our leaders. Um, there's protests, there's marches, there's rallies, there's foot races, there are parades, there are street events, you name it. There's always something going on for some cause. Um, and it gets to the point where when you live here, you kind of stop differentiating between the different causes that are going on. You just sort of really are just concerned about, can I get to work on time? Can I get to this appointment that I have? You know, what are the street closures? How do I get around this? Is Metro going to be bogged down with a lot of extra people? It, it's all pragmatic. We have the worst commute in the country here. A lot of us spend somewhere between three and four hours a day commuting to and from work, and we just don't have time to worry about what the reason is for why something's going on. So, you know, the March for Life this year, I drove in. Uh, rather than taking public transit or anything, I drove in and I parked at Union Station, and something I noticed when I was driving in to the city was that the road closures, there was no indication as to why the streets were closed. You just couldn't get to D.C., anywhere near where the march was. There were police cars uh, parked on the off-ramps, and it said you know, that the road was closed, but there was no indication as to why. And so you had to go all the way around where the march was 
in order to get to a place where you could park your car. And then if you knew what was going on, you could make your way back and find it. But it, there was no way, if you didn't know the March for Life was happening, that you would know that it was happening. You know, it doesn't matter that there's 500,000 people marching down the street. You don't see them because you're not getting anywhere near it. So there's that. There's the lack of the media coverage. They don't pay any attention. They don't want our message getting out. We've known this for a long time. It's sort of cliche, right? So the media is not reporting on it. The people who live here are not seeing it or, or at the very least know that it's happening, but it's just a nuisance to them because they have somewhere they need to be. Um, and then, you know, as a political statement, I think it also sort of fails because it's not making the public impact um, that we want it to for the reasons I've already mentioned because it's it's not getting noticed. But then it's also, you know, it's, it's a march that goes and it ends at the Supreme Court. And to me, that's problematic. Now, I wrote about this again this year on 1 Peter 5, and I'll link to that in the show notes. I, I don't want to belabor the point too much about this revisiting of, of the previous opinion that I had, but I think that there is something here worth noting um, because it sort of sets the stage for where we're going uh, with this podcast today. So in that first piece of writing that I had written about why I didn't attend the March for Life, I said, operating within its constitutional limitations, the Supreme Court should never be swayed by the protests and opinions of the public. It is not an elected body. If it oversteps its bounds by creating new laws or rights out of whole cloth, wouldn't we be better off urging it to return to its constitutional role rather than trying to exploit its improper activism for our own ends? Shouldn't we want a court that does what it's supposed to do, as defined by the Constitution, rather than follow the whim of popular opinion, even if that opinion happens to be our own? The unquestionably pro-life justice, Antonin Scalia, addressed a similar concern in his opinion in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. He wrote, In truth, I am as distressed as the court is about the political pressure directed to the court, the marches, the mail, the protests aimed at inducing us to change our opinions. How upsetting it is that so many of our citizens, good people, not lawless ones on both sides of this abortion issue and on various sides of other issues as well, think that we justices should properly take into account their views, as though we were engaged not in ascertaining an objective law, but in determining some kind of social consensus. The court would profit, I think, from giving less attention to the fact of this distressing phenomenon and more attention to the cause of it. That cause permeates today's opinion, a new mode of constitutional adjudication that relies not upon text and traditional practice to determine the law, but upon what the court calls reasoned judgment, which turns out to be nothing but political predilection and moral intuition, end quote. I go on, pro-lifers in this country are rightfully desperate to end abortion, but in the process, some have lost sight of the proper relationship between ends and means. The sense of urgency is natural, but we must proceed with caution if we do not wish to undermine the very work we are trying to accomplish. This was the place that I had reached um, in 2008. I just didn't see what the point of it was. And I would go to the march, and I felt like there was all this division. Everybody was doing it their own way, right? Some people are singing songs. Other people are doing angry chants. Some people are praying the rosary. Others are marching in silence. Um, there's these guys on the side of the road with the graphic images of aborted babies and they're shouting at us that abortions murder as we're marching and we're looking at them going, hey, you're preaching to the choir, guys, and our kids don't really need to see that. Show it to somebody else. It just felt really discordant. Um, so it was discordant. It was politically ineffective. It should have been going to the Capitol because, honestly, that's where the legislation needs to happen. The Supreme Court should never have made the decision in the first place. But asking them to be judicially activist now and just listen to us complaining about the law and then overturn it, I mean, this, this is a precedent we don't want to continue to enforce. It makes me think about that scene in A Man for All Seasons, and I believe I mentioned this in my original article, um, where 
St. Thomas More and Will Roper are arguing about the law. Go ahead, listen to this. Arrest him. For what? He's dangerous. For libel. He's a spy. Father, that man's bad. There's no law against that. There is God's law. Then God can arrest him. While you talk, he's gone. And go he should if he were the devil himself until he broke the law. So, now you'd give the devil benefit of law. Yes, what would you do? Cut a great road through the law to get after the devil? Yes. I'd cut down every law in England to do that. Oh? And when the last law was down and the devil turned round on you, where would you hide, Roper? The law's all being flat. This country is planted thick with laws from coast to coast, man's laws, not God's. And if you cut them down, and you're just the man to do it, do you really think you could stand upright in the winds that would blow then? Yes. I'd give the devil benefit of law for my own safety's sake. So basically that was the position that I had come to. It was the... I know it's not really... I mean, I don't know if St. Thomas More ever said anything like this. It was a great scene in the movie. But it, but it's this idea of we have to work with the jurisprudence we have. Judicial activism got us legalized abortion. Judicial activism is not the path to get us out. We're not Machiavellian. The ends don't justify the means. We have a court that is supposed to decide whether people are following the law based on what is in the law. They looked into the 14th Amendment in 1973 and said, there's a right here that clearly, clearly does not exist. It was absolutely fabricated out of whole cloth, this idea that a right to abortion existed in the 14th Amendment. It's, it's beyond stupid. Literally, there's no other word for it, I mean, other than evil. So this idea that we should cut through the law to end abortion, that we should do an end run around the legislature and go straight to the court, it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. For me, I think it's a bad idea. And I was thinking that way. And I was thinking as somebody who had lived in D.C. for a few years and, and you know, you're working and you're busy and you don't want to take time out for this March for Life that you maybe, I mean, I did it every year for a long time. I, I started doing it as a teenager. But it just seemed to lose its effectiveness, and I didn't know what the point was anymore, because it wasn't persuading anybody. But then last year, I decided to take another look at it, to go back with fresh eyes. So I went down, and I brought my family and my six children, all bundled up, because it was the coldest. Oh my gosh, it was freezing. And it usually is the coldest day. This year was different, but man, it was cold last year and everybody was miserable, but I wanted my children to see it. And I kind of started seeing it through different eyes because now that I'm older, now that I'm not a college student, now that I take for granted the fact that I know that there are hundreds of thousands or actually millions of people who agree with me that abortion is murder, it was something else to go see it through the eyes of my children because they don't know this they don't know that there can even be that many people in one place they didn't have any concept that people would come from all over the country just to march in the cold and say this is wrong and we're not going to go away we're going to speak for those who don't have voices to speak for themselves and that's when I realized that's who the march is for. It's not for the politicians. They're not going to listen. It's not for the general public who will never even hear about it except through Catholic outlets and maybe a few conservative outlets. They're not going to be persuaded by the fact that we're coming. It doesn't even really cross their radar at all. But you know what would cross their radar as if we stopped suddenly all the classical underestimations of how many people attend the march and it's always comical oh it makes it sound like there's 10,000 people there no there's a lot more than 10,000 people there hundreds of thousands of people come thanks I know what hundreds of thousands of people look like been to those kinds of events this is not minuscule but suddenly They'd inflate our numbers to millions. Millions of people all gave up. 
stopped going to the march, stopped caring, realized it's not something that's ever going to change, and good for them because this, this is where we are now. I mean, it would be in every major news outlet in the world because they are just waiting for us to concede an inch of ground. So we've got to keep going, and we've got to understand who it's for. It's for us. It's for the next generation of pro-lifers. It's for them to not be completely swallowed up by despair, because if they're going to school or to work or out into the world and being told over and over and over again that abortion has to be legal, what about the mothers? What about cases of rape and incest? What about you know life and health? Yada, yada, yada. And they're just feeling crushed by the fact that there's nothing they can do. They need to know that there are a lot of others just like them who are not going to give up that fight. And that's what it's for. That's who it's for. That was my conclusion. But this year I decided I was going to go to the march and I was going to ask some people who were there. I wanted them to tell me, what do you think? Why are you here? 42 years later, nothing's changing. Nobody's listening. Why do you come? And so that's what I did. So for the rest of this podcast, I'm going to present to you, not just me going on and on, but the opinions of others. The opinions of those that I encountered on the street in Washington, D.C. on January 22nd of this year. And then I'm going to present a special guest who's going to offer an essay of his own and why he thinks abortion is wrong. So without further ado, it's time for me to play Man on the Street Reporter. So I'm in D.C. now, making the longish walk from Union Station to the March route down Constitution. I can see it from here, and it looks like just the earliest group of people are starting to cross the intersection of uh, Louisiana and Constitution. So you probably hear the wind. I think it's going to be a pretty windy day, but we'll see how it goes. Get into the mix and see what we can find out from people. Say your name and where you're from. Anne from Malvern, Pennsylvania. So Anne, I, uh, I overheard you guys talking as you were walking along here about how the media coverage doesn't do any justice to this event. What was it that you were saying? I just said that when you watch this on the nightly news, it looks like there are about 10 people who show up to march and that they're wackos and that there are millions of people protesting. Millions. And that's not true. The opposite is true. There are very few people saying pro-abortion and there are tons of very, very well-grounded, good people walking. Something that I notice, though, when I come to these marches is that it's overwhelmingly skewing younger and younger. Is that something that you've, you've seen? I was very surprised how young the crowd is. Yeah. And my question always is, why is it okay to kill a baby and then two weeks after it's born, you're not allowed to? Like, if it's alive, it's alive. Period. Right. So it doesn't make any sense. It's, it's, not, it's not logical at all. And so the only thing that they can do is basically keep everyone quiet so that what we're saying doesn't get out. And as I've said before, I think women do have a choice, but they have a choice as to whether they have sex or not, not whether they keep a baby that they pet. Period. Exactly. So with them not paying attention to the march in the media and in the press, why do you think people keep coming back every year? Because what did they say? Eventually the voice will be heard. Eventually. The lie will be revealed. The, the, lie, the lie will be revealed, yep. and the lies can't stand. Do you think that we have any hope, politically or legislatively, to move the needle in the other direction on this issue? Yeah, I wouldn't be here if I didn't. But I mean, do you think, because something that I, I've definitely noticed is this is not a legal problem, it's a moral problem, it's a cultural problem. So how do we change the culture? Because you could make this against the law tomorrow, but 50% of the country thinks it's fine. I it's, don't think 50% of the country actually. What do you think it is? 30, and I think they're very loud. I, I think for the most part, when you sit down, because I have kids, you know, in their 20s, 30s, teens, 
And, you know, I sit and talk with them, and I'm like, if somebody becomes pregnant and that's your baby, that's your baby, and you won't have anything, any right to say anything, you got to take that. That's a huge responsibility. That's an enormous responsibility. It's not like right now, anything goes. Anything goes because people, nobody's, everybody's thinking they can put God on the back burner until the airplanes hit the World Trade Centers again. Right. You know? Right. So, God is. No, you're right. God isn't the center, and that's the problem. But I'm wondering how we how we get that to happen in a culture that doesn't seem to think that they need Him, because they they don't. We have everything we want. Why do we need God? I mean, I, don't you kind of feel like the only thing that's going to change it is some big disaster? I think we've had a lot of big disasters, and I think it hasn't changed. I think people have to realize that they can't Google it, that they can't fix it themselves, and eventually they really, oh, they really have to stop. You know. But I don't think I don't I don't think we're gonna get there by browbeating them or anything. I right. think we're gonna get there through kindness, through acts of kindness, through good acts, and then people will see that. And I think it's you kind of ooze ooze Christ. <laughs> I like that ooze Christ. Sounds a little messy, but that's fine. Life is messy. It is messy. I saw you over here looking like you wanted to say something. No, Can I get I just, your name though? I, uh, Kathy from Malvern also. Okay. And when you asked uh, Anne about what is going to change, it's not going to be the law. It's not going to be from the government. I just feel the answer is going to come from prayer. And I, I totally believe it could be changed. The rosary, right? I mean, what is rosary, our lady said? Say, the rosary our blessed is the mother thing. will can change this, if, and she can change hearts. And I think that that is the answer. But Prayer. how do we get people to believe that something that feels so simple and ineffective is actually the most powerful weapon we've got? I guess just constantly communicating that to people, trying to get that message out there, one person at a time. Yeah. Uh, and, and always add that to your um, prayer intentions when you're saying the rosary. And I think we don't have to be feeling like we have to do so much. We can put it back in God's hands and say, we're here, tell us what to do. But I feel like that's the total answer. The next person that I ran into was a little bit out of the ordinary and unexpected. He was a tall man walking down the street, very loudly proclaiming the truth about the way abortion affects the black community with all the passion and persuasiveness of a street preacher. I stopped him to get his thoughts. What is your name? My name is Adrian. Adrian, and where uh-huh. are you from? I'm from Virginia, Norfolk, Virginia. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. And what I was mentioning is that Planned Parenthood, before Planned Parenthood was Planned Parenthood, it was called the American Birth Control League. The American Birth Control League changed its name in 1942 to Planned Parenthood. They chose Margaret Sanger, who was the founder of Planned Parenthood, and that she, she, you know, um, they used her as the, you know, the president to, um, you know, just to head, uh, head up everything. But it was, it was created to exterminate the Negro population. Anybody of color, Latino, Puerto Rican, whatever. You know, um, there's a documentary called The Mafia 21. It's spelled M-A-A-F-A 21. It's a two-hour long documentary. And I, if, I, I think most of the people in this crowd, if they, they haven't seen that. If they've seen that, they will really march. They won't just come out just because folks are out here. That's a good thing, but they're really much because it's it's in humanity to man. Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday was um, this past um, Friday, which was on the 15th. We celebrated on Monday. Dr. King died for civil rights. Before there was civil rights, there were human rights. Human rights come from God. Before there was ever a governmental structure on earth, God gave us human rights, the life, the right to live. Roe versus Wade in 1973 was passed by a Supreme Court decision 72. Supreme Court decision 72 said a baby was not life, was not, you know, human and was, uh, 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 you know, a fetus and, and tissue and therefore was property of the mother, therefore could be killed. In 1857, uh, there was a Dred Scott decision. Dred Scott decision, same ruling, 72, said that Dred Scott was a slave. And the descendants Dred Scott was a slave, and therefore he wasn't protected by the Constitution of the United States when he wanted to, to, you know, to be free, that if his slave master could catch him, he could be killed. 
Same thing. The law doesn't make a person a person. Right. It's not. It's not just a. Uh, it's not just a parallel. We're dealing. We're dealing with the same thing. Same. If you're spiritual, I'm born again. It's the same spirit. It's the same. It's a demon operating that had tried to help blacks in slavery. It's the same thing with you know um, the Roe versus Wade. You know. Why do you think that blacks are unaware of the fact that they are the single largest group targeted by the abortion industry? Well, they don't know. They they haven't they haven't researched it. Like if you share with some, they'll hear it, but some it go on deaf ears, just like saying the word of God. Mm -hmm. But some would take would look it up. But that's that's what it is. They if if they would go out. And if they will go out and they will, uh, you know, research, it's all, things is on the internet, but it's spelled, it's Martha, it's Swahili, it means something terrible. M-A-A-F-A-21. Why are the leaders of that community not telling the truth to the people? Uh, they're compromised. I believe that they're being paid to keep quiet, just like a lot of politicians are being paid. Look, we'll let you be here, but, you know, you can't, you know, you can only, you know, touch this issue on, on a little bit, or, you know, you got to let it go. Because it's a sensitive issue, because it's been taught that it's all right, that it's all right for a woman to kill her child, you know, and, and they're pushing that. If any Republican runs pro, and say they're pro-life, the, the left will say that they're warring against women. But you got women who have died in abortion clinics. They are trying to protect the women. Right. But yet, those who say they're for a woman's right to choose, they only care about their position. They don't care nothing about the people. They are what you call sellouts. You know? Yeah, so what do you think the solution is? Because we've been doing this for 42 years now, and it feels like nobody's listening, doesn't it? This, yeah, you're right. The solution is God's love. Love on them with the love of Jesus. Pray. Pray is number one. But also share the truth, just like I just shared with you. And I appreciate your time. Thank yes, you for sir. doing that. I want to keep you from your group. Bless you, God brother. bless you, too. Bless you. What's your name? My name's Steve. Steve, nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. God Take care. As I finished up my interview with Adrian, I heard a loud voice calling my name from the crowd. It was a familiar voice, one I hadn't heard in a while. My friend, Father Matthew Bartulica. We'd gone to college together at Franciscan University of Steubenville, where we had spent more than our fair share of time in his Ford Thunderbird, traveling to and from our favorite bars, listening to the Smiths, and talking about politics and theology. It seemed like a perfect opportunity for an interview. Father, where are you stationed again? Uh, Independence, Missouri. Independence, it's a good name. Yes, it is. Good name for what we're doing here. What I've been asking people today that I I think you and I have probably talked about it sometime in the past is um, we've been doing this for 42 years and it feels like nobody's listening. Why does everybody keep coming? I actually wrote for my bulletin blurb last week that this is the one event that most people, everyone that's here at the event, would prefer that the event doesn't even happen at all or wouldn't have to happen. But... They still keep coming, and this is the one day of the year to show some unity in the fight that we're hoping to do something about. But how successful it is and what result or when the result will end up coming about, that's um, hard to say. Politically and legislatively, uh, I mean, is there... There anywhere to go from here? I mean, do we have any hope down those roads, or is it something else that we need to be looking at? I think that the only way to do something politically or legislatively is actually to uh, truly consider the people that um, are being voted for and are running this, uh, running the country into the ground. Yeah, I mean, it's not a question of parties. It's a question of, of principles and of morals. Yeah, absolutely. It's a question of the people and the the morals. Like as far as political parties goes, I don't think that the biggest problem is is that we only have two, and both of them are a disaster. And so, what we wind up doing all the time is trying to find the people that we think have a chance of winning that maybe are closer to our side than the other guy. 
and then we get nada. But as a very wise person um, has recently stated, considering that the government is so corrupt and every, anyone that would seek political power at this time must be such a narcissist and think so highly of themselves that they're exactly the people that Plato warns us about in the Republic, exactly the people that you don't want to get elected are the only people that are getting elected. <laughs> right, right. So I guess the thing that I'm trying to figure out is it seems to me like it's more of a, of a spiritual and a moral problem than it is a legal problem. I and mean, we could change the law tonight and you know the country's still going to be divided on this so how do we what do we need to do do you think as a priest as a catholic priest do we need to do in order to bring about this spiritual conversion that's absolutely necessary or we're never going to gain any ground i think one of the best things that's been happening uh, i'd probably say in the last 15 or 20 years that for a long time i guess the pro-life people were maybe taking their time to figure it out is opening the pre pregnancy crisis centers and especially opening them right next to abortion clinics offering free sonograms and help to the women that truly need it in those dire situations and precisely in that way are people uh, changing their minds on the issue and actually the internet and other things no matter how much uh, bad things can come out of uh, such uh, technology or whatever but also so much good and evangelization and information that people can find out there that they're never able to find before or had to had a greater difficulty finding it than they do today what about prayer what what prayer you know, do you recommend to be effective? I mean, because this is spiritual warfare, right? I mean, this is demonic. What we're dealing with is demonic. So how do we combat this? And how do we maybe convince ourselves to believe that prayer, which sometimes feels like it's the most ineffective thing that we can do, because you just feel powerless. I'm saying these prayers and nothing's happening. How do we come to understand that it's prayer and, and penance and sacrifice that are the things that are actually going to make a difference more than anything we can do? I'd probably say that one of the biggest problems in the church in general, and maybe I don't know how to pinpoint it, but of course is the fact that people don't go to confession anymore, don't see the need to go to confession. Of course, for the small number of Catholics that are still going to Mass, um, the question of how the Mass is being celebrated and uh, their choices or their maybe um, their inability to have a choice to go to a Mass that would be properly done or the fact that the average person is just going to go to the place that um, is his home parish and they're not you're not going to search out uh, to change parishes or and you shouldn't the, the average person shouldn't have to do that it should just be a given that if you're a catholic and you're going to church you're going to be getting the sacraments validly celebrated and the truth preached but i think that might be too much to expect so without today. without a sense of the sacred of holy things how can we have a sense of the sacredness of life essentially exactly yeah, that's a, that's a tough problem. And I know that, you know, it comes down in a lot of cases to individual priests like you that you just say, well, in my parish, this is what we're going to do. Well, I hope we I do things correctly and that, um, I guess, in the end, we'll all be um, held responsible for um, how we, especially for priests, I'd say the most important thing for them to do is celebrating the sacraments properly, giving it to the people and encouraging the people to participate. As I continued my walk down Constitution Avenue, I spotted a young woman wearing a jacket that looked like a bear. You can see it if you go to my article on the March for Life that will be linked in the show notes of this, uh, of this episode, but it was very striking. And I decided to stop and speak to her and the group of young ladies that she was with because young women are really the most potent force at the March for Life. And I wanted to get their perspective. 
I'm Rihanna Barakat. I'm coming from Mater Ecclesiae Parish in New Jersey. Mater Ecclesiae, that sounds like a Latin Mass parish to me, is it? It is. It's because we're the best. Um, <laughs> we're not going to go into that right now, but we're the best. So. It's a whole other podcast. Yeah, no, it is a whole other I do a lot of podcasts about that. But yeah. so, um, so basically what I'm asking people is, um, you know, it's 42 years we've been doing this. Most of the people here weren't even born when Roe versus Wade happened. You guys can all come down if you want to, like... Join in. There's a group. This Okay, what's your name? Emma Barakat. Emma, nice yep. to meet you. Anybody else want to put... You don't have to. You want to put your name on the microphone, we can do that. So, we got twins here. You could do one for both. That's fine. So, I really wanted to talk, though, especially to young ladies, because it's something that the other side doesn't seem to get, uh, is that women are actually pro-life, too. Um, but but I wanted to start with this. So 42 years, people have been coming and doing this march. They show up here, they drive from all over the country, and nobody knows that this is happening. Now, I live here. It doesn't make a dent in our lives. I've been here since 2002, and we have a protest or a march or a 5K for some cause that's shutting down parts of the city every other week. So for us, it's really easy to just tune this out unless we've got to be somewhere down here and you're making us late and then we just don't like you very much. Um, but in, this is the biggest single event that happens in D.C. It's consistently underestimated. It's not on the news. We all know this, right? So why do you keep coming? Uh, I've been here. I've never missed a year. I'm 22. I've been here for 22 years. That's Mom awesome. brought me here in the room. Stayed with my sister. She's also been here every year. Um, I come because, like you said, it's something where you're coming to this but it's not making an effect on the city. It's not something where everybody stops what they're doing and they come and check this out. None of the news carries it except EWTN. And it's just something that you have to be strong in it and you have to believe that it will change. So I think it's something where even though nobody's watching and if they are watching, they're all giving you dirty looks, you come because you want to change it. You want to do something about it. And you have to believe it yourself because it's really easy to kind of just fall away and think like, oh, I'm pro-life, but... You know, I, I can't make the march this year. Or So does it work as a political statement, do you think? Or is it more for us? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think that as a political statement, it's something... It works in the sense that clearly it's doing something because nobody's covering it. It's something that just will not, you know, they refuse to acknowledge it. Because it's something big that if people saw what was happening, you know, somebody would be changed. Somebody would be surprised or shocked. And they take such precautions to never show any of this that you can see somewhere that it's making a difference. They're terrified. Yeah. Because we make sense and they don't want that to get out. Interesting. So... What do you think it's going to take, though, for this to change? Because they've got a lock on the media. You know, I mean, I've been waiting now for the last five years for social media to make a dent. And I don't feel like we're making a dent. Um, you know, I, my website gets about 300,000 page views a month. Sounds like a lot. It's not a lot. You know, when you compare it to a media footprint of 10, 20, 30 million people a month, which is what most of the big media outlets have. So, I mean, how do we surround them, basically? How do we overcome their blockade and get the message out to the people, do you think? Uh, I think, I mean, somebody else can answer too, but I think just by you making a difference in the sense that you are coming out to the march, you are being chased, you are, um, you know, supporting it, you don't have to be in people's faces and you don't have to, you know, just like be aggressive about it at all. Somebody seeing you, you know, taking a stand in this, It'll change something in them, whether it's, you know, that they will, you know, believe what you're saying and they, like, really understand and they're changed, or just in the sense that it hits them in a way that they're sitting there thinking, wow, like, you're passionate about this. You, you know, you, you know what you're doing, basically. Right. Um, I don't know if somebody else... Anybody else have anything... I don't know. I think it's just about persistency. And you see um, more and more speakers get up there during the rally that are young people. And oh, they always say it's our generation, but now, you know, it's just spreading out to more and more people my age. And, like, people are having kids and big families, and we're all fostering this and supporting each other. And then that helps because now we've got little kids coming to the march, and we grew up going to the march, and it's going to keep going. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you guys think about this, but we're all survivors of this Holocaust. I'm first generation. I was born four years after Roe. You guys are second generation. I mean, we we don't have any people under the age of 40 
who didn't grow up in this country without abortion as a de facto. I mean, they could have been a statistic, right? So what do you all have to say to women who think that you being here means that you're stupid and oppressed and all this stuff and that you don't haven't taken control of your sexuality and all this crap that they say? What do you have to say to them? I can defend myself just fine if we get in a conversation. I can back myself up. Um, I don't know. But I mean, in general, what do you think... I, I, I mean, the message needs to be for those people. What aren't they getting? I think that it's... Um, they always talk about your choice and your choice and all about choice and all that stuff. I've talked to girls at abortion clinics, and they are going there because they don't have a choice. And they're telling me, oh, I can't. I don't have any other choice. And it's So if you want to talk to me about women's rights and having choices, most of those girls are going there because they don't have a choice. Exactly. And that's what we're here to show them that they do. Now we just need to get them to listen. <laughs> so the last thing I want to ask you about is, you know, I, I've believed for a while, and, and you're free to contradict me on this if you'd like, that there is no political or legal solution to this problem. This is a moral crisis. This is a spiritual crisis, and it's a spiritual battle. This is this is demonic warfare that we're dealing with. How do we, as a nation... I mean, because we can make abortion against the law tomorrow. What's it going to change? We're divided, right? And then the next, the next Congress that came in, or the next Supreme Court justice, they just switch it back the other way. So if we can't politically solve this problem... What do we need to do spiritually in order to change people's hearts? What does that look like? Anybody have any idea? I mean, what are we working toward? Uh, I believe the solution to less, I mean, to the end of abortion is chastity and abstinence. That's the way that you're going to change it is starting with yourself and, you know, the people around you. Again, like, it's great that you go to the march and you show up, but you just come for that one day and then you go on with your lives. But... The answer to that, again, it's not its not these people who want an abortion. It, it, the whole reason why they're having it is because it's unwanted. It's something where they're young girls, they're not married, they don't have somebody. And I believe the answer to that is chastity, that you, you know, start to value yourself and have respect for your body, and you really, you know, have purity. So, Living by example. And I, and I know so many people who are non-religious, and they say... Oh, you know, I wouldn't have an abortion, but I'm not going to go protest it, or I'm not going to, you know, tell somebody else not to. And it's like, well, if you believe in that, then stand up for it. And there's so many people who are just, like, so, like, apathetic and, like, oh, I'll just go along with the flow. But they need to get, like, we need to light them on fire and be like, you need to stand up for it. If you believe in it, stand up for it. Yeah. What do you think the most effective prayer is, the most effective spiritual weapon we've got? Uh, I have to say the rosary. The rosary? I love the St. Michael prayer. St. Michael. Spiritual warfare, I tell you what, I mean, it's huge. As our conversation turned to prayers like the rosary and the St. Michael prayer, and we were talking about spiritual warfare, something occurred to me, and I couldn't help asking the question. Most of the people here are Catholic, aren't they? Yeah. Why are we all by ourselves on this? I don't know, I think we're very united. Catholics are very, you know, it's very structured, so... Do you think it's because we're the only ones that don't bend on this or contraception? I mean... Because it starts like, there. I, I talk to a lot of people who don't know about this because they think they take contraception into it. And obviously because we believe that we're here for both of them. But I do know people who are here who are against abortion, but they don't understand the contraception um, battle. Which right now, like the battle right here right now is abortion. And obviously I support that too. But a lot of people just I would lump all the Catholic things into one and they just put it. That's a Catholic thing. And right. I'm not Catholic. Right. So I don't believe in it. But it's really about like each individual issue. It doesn't have to be a Catholic thing. It's a moral thing. It's like a human, like good and bad you know, what's moral about it. So. Yeah, yeah. I think that the minute you separate the procreative act from the procreative end, you wind up with everything. You wind up with gay marriage. You wind up with, you know, all kinds of sexual perversion and pornography. And you wind up with abortion. I mean, because, because that wasn't the reason why, you know, we were doing that activity. It wasn't because we wanted a kid. It was because we wanted to have fun. It's a, it's a physical thing. You know, when you take other physical things, like if you eat a lot, you're going to get sick. Like... It's the same thing with sexuality. It has a purpose, and if you're not going to use it for its purpose, then there are going to be side effects. As I made my way toward the back of the march, I saw a group of Canadians. There weren't many of them, but they were very loud, wearing red sweatshirts and waving their red Canadian flags. There was no way to miss them. It occurred to me it was a little odd that they were here in our nation's capital, campaigning for our pro-life laws when they have so many of those issues of their own back at home. So I decided to ask them why they were here. 
Your name is? Christina. Christina, and where are you coming from? We're from, we're from Toronto, Canada. Toronto, Canada. Okay, so I have some friends in Toronto. You guys are here at our march, in our country, with our problem and our laws. Why'd you come down? Because uh, it's not just your guys' problem, because injustice that happens anywhere in the world is a threat to justice everywhere in the world. I would agree with that. So you guys came down to just so, show some solidarity? or Yeah, and protest the Canadian embassy. So that they know that we stand with our American brothers and sisters in that uh, abortion is a crime against humanity. So for 42 years, people have been coming to this march. And for 42 years, nobody has listened and everybody has tuned us out. What's different now or... Or what do you think can change? How do we get people to pay attention to what it is that we're going to say? Well, I think it helps that we're such a youthful movement and that uh, we're not aborting ourselves out of existence. So uh, there's going to be this movement of youth who are growing up with this pro-life message. And eventually we will overcome, as uh, Dr. King said. Something that uh, that I'm curious and I've been asking everybody about is I don't think that there is a political solution to this. I don't think that there's a legal solution to this. This is a moral crisis. This is a spiritual crisis. What do you guys think it is that we need to do to change hearts and minds? Because we could change the law tomorrow. Nothing's going to change, right? So what do we need to do? Because it's a country divided on this issue and people can be confronted with the facts and they don't even see it for what it is. How do we move the ball on that? Uh, we, I think we need to always pray, um, but Christ always prayed before he went out and did something, before he preached. So he didn't just pray about things. He actually, his prayer sustained his action. So I think that's important. And to change the culture, I think uh, Cardinal O'Malley said it in his homily, we have to uh, take care of the poor, the physically poor, the spiritually poor, everybody who's poor. And I think once we start reaching out on all these different levels, we will eventually affect change. And I think that's what we're seeing here at the March with all these young people here. How long do you think it'll be before we have a big victory on this? Well, I sure hope it's before I have any grandkids. That's for sure. But it's as long as it has to. From the time that slavery was, uh, they started fighting slavery with William Wilberforce to the civil rights movement was over 200 years. So if it takes another 200 years, it takes another 200 years. We'll be here, right? Yeah, that's for sure. All right, thank you guys. As I finished up my interview with the Canadians, I realized that the march was coming to an end. The last stragglers had made their way from the National Mall and were finishing the route up Constitution Avenue toward the Supreme Court. I grabbed a few last snapshots with my camera and began packing up my gear. As I turned around to head up the road with them, I noticed two young women walking in the other direction, one of whom had bright pink hair. Hard to miss. But even more hard to miss were their signs. The younger of the two had a sign that said, I mourn my aborted sibling. The other, a sign that read, I regret my abortion. I stopped them somewhat hesitantly and asked them if I could hear their story. By this point, the wind had really picked up, so I have to apologize for the background noise. It doesn't diminish, however, the power of what they had to say. So what's your name? My name is Bryce Griffin. And where are you from? Charlotte, North Carolina. Charlotte. So you're carrying a sign that says, I regret my abortion. What can you talk to me about? Well, uh, in 1998, I lived here in D.C., actually, and was dating uh, a rock guy. And I found out I was pregnant, and when I called him and told him I was pregnant, he said, that's fine, we'll take care of it. And he didn't skip a beat. You know, there was no thought put into it at all. It was truly a crisis pregnancy. And in that moment, I really, I almost had some strength and comfort in his confidence that we were going to take care of it. And um, I never looked back. I opened up the phone book under A, abortion, called, you know, a place in Arlington and made the appointment. And that was that. Um, Immediately, immediately, I was, I, I suffered from it right away. That very night, just tried to drink myself to death over and over and over again. Um, and eventually broke up with him. Never heard from him again. And then, uh, actually, when Zoe was born, um, when Zoe was born, I kind of realized 
what I had done, you know, what had happened. And uh, I never saw an ultrasound. The ultrasound screen was behind me, so I didn't know anything, you know, didn't hear a heartbeat, just didn't know anything. I just was uneducated, uninformed, and was not given a choice. Um, and once I had my first daughter, I just, I decided I needed to seek healing and once I found healing I decided I needed to speak out because I don't ever want her to be in that position ever feel like that's a choice that she would have to make and so I feel like if I don't come to the march and if I don't carry this sign then my baby died in vain it's a very courageous thing to do though I've known people who've gone through the same experience and nobody knows that they've they've gone through it so I mean how did you find the courage to do that uh, in the confessional actually um, Father Larry Richards gives a, uh, a talk on confession and he does this examination of conscience at the end and he says if you've had an abortion confess it name the child pray to your child and ask your child to pray for you and um, I was listening to it on my iPod I was running one day and I just stopped in my tracks and I was bawling and I called my priest and I said I've had an abortion I need to confess that I've had an abortion and so we made an appointment and I was just heaving in the confessional, sobbing, and he's smiling and holding a box of tissues, and he said, you know, you're forgiven, Jesus is glad you're here, your sin is absolved, you know, he absolved me of, of my sins, and um, the more I thought about it and saw, you know, all this public support for Planned Parenthood, and I started to stew, and I just felt like I'm not going to let you people um, use my child, you know, for profit and publicity, I'm going to speak out and, and and try to be a witness for life. That's awesome. So, Thank you. being here, you know, something I've been asking everybody as I've been walking around is we've been doing this for 42 years. Nobody listens. Mm-hmm. What, what does it take to change it? You know, especially because as somebody who you've been through the other side of it, and it seems like while there are some women who go through it and then they realize that it was wrong and then they need healing, the other one seems so obstinately opposed. How do we move the needle on this? Because changing the law isn't going to fix hearts. This is a spiritual problem. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, you're absolutely right. And um, this is something that Zoe actually asked Joe Scheidler about. Um, and he said, we're not going to see a change in the law. So what I would like to see is that we lead by example that you know people see we have peace we have joy you know we have hope and and that comes obviously uh through jesus christ and we just have to be an example you know you we can we can have that true joy that joy of of having gone through the sacrament of confession and receiving our lord in uh in the eucharist and and then you can see the angry pro-aborts and you could you know you make your choice what we need to do is sow the seeds of um the sanctity of life obviously chastity we need to um, teach our children and and i mean just as much as possible how important it is to save yourself because you know you, you don't regret the children you have you regret the ones you don't you know uh nobody looks at their child and thinks gosh i should have aborted you you know, yeah. however, you have the abortion and you, it's, it's last it's forever. It's yeah. done. Abortion is forever and it hurts forever. So I, I think the only way to change hearts is to continue to pray and be kind and reach out to these people in charity. Uh, a lot of times the most vocal um, supporters of abortion are post-abortive. And so they have to be vocally supportive to justify what they've done. You know, and they're hurting too. So it's yeah. just it's through prayer, through prayer and sacrifice. Thank you for your for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's good to talk to you. And there you have it. Everybody I talked to knew there was a reason they had to be at the march. They all had their own reasons. They all had their own stories to tell. They all came from different places around the country and even around the world. But it was a singular event for each one of them, something that they couldn't miss, something that they knew that to not be a part of would mean giving up on the fight somehow. 
the March for Life isn't a replacement for other kinds of pro-life activity. It's not a one-and-done thing where you check off a box and say, hey, I went to the march, I can stop being pro-life actively for the rest of the year. But it's still important. We need to keep marching to keep speaking for those who don't have the voices to speak for themselves. We need to keep standing for this truth because it's the only thing between us and the abyss. It's the last stand of a civilization that wants desperately, at least in some quarters, not to slide completely into a demonic barbarism. It's a hard thing to do. For a lot of people, it's a huge sacrifice. There's debate over whether or not it's effective and whether or not we should be bringing our children to something like this because why should we let children know about something as horrible as abortion? My wife and I have made the choice to let our children know. We do it simply and gently as much as we can. But they know that there are mothers who make the choice to kill their babies. They make the choice to go in and have an operation that makes their babies go away. And that the only way a baby can go away is for it to die. The amazing thing about children, about the way that they think, is that there's just something so fundamentally pure in their thought process. They cannot conceive of how anyone can justify such an act. Every time my wife has ever been pregnant, we've come home from the doctor and we've shown the ultrasound image to our children. And children under the age of two years can see the picture and say, Baby, it's just so obvious. We have to convince ourselves that it's not. We have to drown out our own conscience. We complicate things with nuance and with this idea of choice and personal opposition, but freedom and it's all garbage. We have to stand for life. My son Ivan is eight years old. His school had all of the children in every class do some sort of a project in anticipation of the March for Life. Most of them did posters. To the degree that they were able, they conveyed a pro-life message. I worked with Ivan on an essay that he wrote. And he wrote it. It was his words. I liked it so much when I heard him read it that I asked him if we could record it for you. So here's an eight-year-old explaining why he thinks abortion is wrong, in his own words. I believe that abortion is a really bad thing. Abortion kills babies, and I think that's horrible. It is against the fifth commandment to kill. Once you kill one baby, it takes the whole family tree away. It takes a whole bunch of people from the world. It takes more than just one life. If you let that baby be born, maybe it will grow up and get married and have kids. And those kids will have kids, and thousands of people will come into the world. If you kill that baby, none of those people will ever exist. Abortion makes me feel so sad because it takes away another person's life. They won't be able to see anything beautiful. They won't be able to have any family. It also makes me kind of mad because it murders a baby, and I don't want that to happen. It makes me want to fight back smell. My baby brother Liam is so cute. He is so funny and nice. I would just hate if something bad happened to him. If my mom and dad had had an abortion instead of having him, it would make me feel so upset. When my mom had a miscarriage, it made me feel so sad. I can't understand why parents would ever want to do that to their own baby. It makes me want to find a way to stop them. 
When I grow up, I want to write a book about why abortion is bad so that people will understand it better and might change their mind about having an abortion. They might still have one, but they might not. I would also like to talk to people who are considering the abortion and try to convince them that it's wrong. Right now, all I can do is pray and ask Jesus and Mary to help people not to have an abortion. I would just hate if they did. And really, there's not much else to say. From our nation's capital, I am Steve Skojak. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. You have been listening to the 1 Peter 5 podcast. This has been a production of 1 Peter 5 Incorporated. Copyright 2015. All rights reserved. Please remember to visit us online at www.1peter5.com. That's www.1peter5, all spelled out, all one word, dot com. You can join our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash 1peter5. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash 1peter5. If you feel we've provided you with something of value, please hit our donate page and make a contribution. It not only helps pay for web hosting and the fine content we provide, but keeps food on our tables, coffee in our cups, and the lights on, which really helped us see what we're doing. Until next time, I'm Steve Skojak. Thanks for listening.